this is from Luke chapter 1, the beginning of the birth story. If everybody could please stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's listen intently now <clears throat> to the gospel story. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And so the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month for her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble state of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for all who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arms. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this spectacular story. Lord, I pray that you would give us, uh, that you would illuminate our minds to it, Lord, that you would help us to see both the ordinariness of, of the lives of everyone involved uh, and the spectacular nature of what is breaking in on them, Lord. And even though they don't fully get it, even though it takes a lifetime for them to really even comprehend the basics of it, Lord, the truth is that you have overwhelmed this world and the evil of it and the emptiness of it. And you have brought with you life and peace and joy. So we pray, Lord, that as we go through this, you would help us to see that even as we are just like them, living ordinary lives and facing all of the problems and all of the tragedy and all of the beauty and the bittersweet uh, reality of what life is like on the ground, that at the very same time we have been caught up into this grand narrative 
of the redemption of mankind, of God becoming man and dying for his people and bringing with him salvation for us. Lord, help us to see that. Help us to see that so that we might trust in the right things. So we pray, Lord, that you would give us minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word as you promised to beautify your afflicted ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Uh, there's a movie I've been wanting to see for a while, a book I've been wanting to read called Hillbilly Elegy. Uh, it's a great movie. Don't, don't take the kids with you to see it, for sure. But um, it's a movie by, by a guy named J.D. Vance, who ended up graduating Har uh, Yale Law School. But he grew up, he came from a family who had root, deep roots in the Appalachian Mountains, uh, who then escaped, uh, his grandparents really escaped that, having, uh, you know, at a very young age and moved to a city in Ohio in a poor working class uh, uh, district and just lived their lives uh, in, uh, in just the, the dreary ordinariness of the, the most difficult hardships in life. Uh, and it's a movie that just, it's a movie that's just so real. It's uh, that's why I, uh, it's such a great movie to me. It's a movie that just pulls out just the real sadness and the real the real hardship of life that these people were living through, right? And it's rough. It's a you know it's a rough around the edges movie, but it's very it's a very real movie, punctuated, and it just moves back and forth between just just hopeless trauma and tragedy to, you know, little sparks of beauty and sacrifice and love. Great movie. What my favorite scene in it probably was the mother in the story is a nurse who, who um, became overwhelmed with her situation and the hardships of having children young uh, out of wedlock. And she turns in, in her nursing career, starts pocketing the pills and eventually becomes addicted to heroin. And her son is J.D. Vance, who has made it to Yale Law School out of this background. And he comes back to help his mom get out of rehab. Uh, and, you know, one thing leads to another. And eventually she doesn't want to go to the rehab. She wants to go to this hotel. And me as a former addict, I'm like reading behind the lines about what's happening here, right? And so finally he drops her off at the hotel, goes to get her food and comes back and finds her in the bathroom just about ready to shoot up. They fight and struggle ensues, and he is just so overwhelmed with sadness and frustration and desperation that after he'd gone through all this and spent so much money to help his mom, here she is in the bathroom with a needle, and at the same time, the mom is screaming at him as he takes the needle away and plunges it into the toilet. And at that moment, I had this crazy sensation of having absolute sympathy with both of those people for different reasons. Coming from my background as an addict, I understood what it meant for her to have that dope squeezed out into the toilet. She was putting all of her hope and trust in the fact that that shot was gonna make everything okay. Even if she knew it was only gonna be for six or eight hours, at least it was better than what she had right then. And when he squeezed that off into the toilet, it was like the world collapsed in upon her and everything ended. And at the same time, I felt for the son, now having the experience of, you know, 
counseling, you know, got, you know, people that are in that situation and just having my heart broken over and over again of working with people that end up back on dope, back on drugs, end up killing themselves in it. The frustration and just the, the, the craziness of all of it and the, just the pressure that, uh, that the son felt in that moment as his mom was threatening everything that he had worked for up to that point to get into, heart, to get into Yale Law School. Uh, it's just an awful picture of everybody kind of placed, misplaced hope in the wrong things and the wrong things producing chaos and despair in their lives and producing ultimately what, what Henry Thoreau, the poet, called quiet desperation of life, which is something we all know about. No matter where you're from, no matter where you're at, everybody, when you say that line from Henry Thoreau, it resonates with everybody because everybody knows what he means. For Thoreau, you know, he was a proto-minimalist. He had come to understand that the mainstream of American life where everybody was just caught up in this mad dash for more and trusting that satisfaction and fulfillment was going to come from getting more stuff or, uh, you know, being fulfilled and, and successful in the world. He was like, he saw the dead end of that. Even though he wasn't a Christian, he had the vision to understand that those things ended in despair because they could never produce the happiness they promised. And so he decided to peace out. And that's, he went to Walden Pond, built a cabin, and decided that he was going to cut himself off from everything but the basic necessities of life to try and find what it was that would create that happiness and fulfillment that he so desperately sought. He was right about the problem. He was right about the condition. But he was wrong about the solution. Now, we've been through a hard year, and I've been thinking about, thinking about this year, and I was thinking about Advent in relation to this year, and you, know, you, you, know, you want to put stuff together that's going to really encourage us. And, and here, you know, this year, on the one hand, listen, this year has been anything but ordinary, right? <laughs> but at the same time, what has, this been, what has this year been? This year has been like an overwhelming assault of ordinariness thrust upon us. Think about that. We have all, you know, for, you know, whatever reason, these shutdown orders keep coming. We've been, you know, denied a lot of the entertainments and distractions and things that we usually turn to kind of dull the quiet desperation of life. And we've been stuck, uh, you know, in these long periods of time where we're kind of overwhelmed with the ordinariness of life. That's all there is. 12 hours a day. Just the regular, ordinary desperation of life, and it's kind of overwhelming and sad. And we've been, and we've been feeling it. This is the daily grind of that. When is this going to end? When is this nonsense going to end? You know. And we read this story, the birth story. Um. You know, we always, we go to the straight to the spectacular. At least I do. I'm like, virgin birth, you know, the, the, you know, I love sermons about like the invasion of the forces of good hitting, hitting the, hitting the beaches of the enemy like D-Day, you know, just the supernatural like war of angels and demons kind of stuff, you know, but, uh, and that's true. This, 
this is about that. But I think it's just as helpful to see the dreary ordinariness of the, of the lives of everybody involved in this story that this stuff broke in on. Uh, and just like we are having to slog through the dreary ordinariness of life, and we're caught up, uh, we're caught up in all the bittersweet tragedy and, and beauty of what life is like under the curse in the fall, so everybody in the story is in the same boat, right? Mary, Joseph, Elizabeth, Zechariah, Simeon, the prophet, Anna, the prophetess, the shepherds, everybody in here. And we see in this simple story of the birth of this baby is caught up in the quiet desperation of ordinary life. And yet at the same time, the very same story uh, is the story of this invasion of the forces of good into the, the enemy, into enemy territory, through the incarnation of God, that God himself took on flesh and came to be with us to solve our problem in, in all of that majesty and power has swept us up into this spectacular supernatural story of redemption that is like the great narrative of history. Uh, and it's not so that, and when we see that, when we see that they're living lives that are kind of just like us and with this crazy story that's the, you know, that God showed up in their lives quite unexpectedly and caught them all, caught them all up in it, kind of helps us to see that that's true of us, right? This isn't just Mary's story. It's not just Joseph. It's not just these people. It's our story. And Mary makes that real clear at the end in the song that she sings. And so we're going to look at three things today. Wow. <laughs> the quiet desperation of our ordinary lives being caught up, second thing is being caught up in the quiet revolution of Jesus. And the third thing is the reversal of fortunes for everybody who's in Christ. So let's start one thing at a time here. The quiet desperation of the ordinary life. Uh, this passage... Um, you know, like I said, we like to look at people in the Bible as superstars of the faith, right? And probably nobody, Mary, more than anybody, has been lifted up into the status of superstar, right? There's traditions within Christianity that have a whole cult based around the saints uh, and worship based on, uh, on Mary, based on this passage and others. Um, but even, you know, even we tend to look back on this story and think that, you know, Mary... You think of Mary in these, you know, perfect terms almost. The reality is that Mary and Joseph was living a life much like we do. And how do we know that? We know, first of all, that Mary and Joseph came from nowhere. Listen, in, in verse 26, it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. Now, that doesn't mean a lot to us, Right? Because we're, you know, we don't really know. We're not from there, right? You don't really know the cities. You don't know the culture. You don't know, you know, what's what. Uh, but, you know, Gabriel is one of the only two angels named in the entire Bible. 
Michael, Gabriel. Only two angels were named, and Gabriel's always the messenger who comes bringing like this, this global, like redemptive, historical, crazy, big news of God's major movement in the world. He's the angel that came to Daniel. He's the angel that came to Daniel and told him of all these global things. And now here he is showing up to Mary. If you were an ancient Near Eastern person, right, uh, it would sound like this. It would sound like, you know, and then Gabriel, the angel of God, was sent to Adelanto, California. And maybe you don't even know where Adelanto is. Does anybody even know? Do you know? See? <laughs> it's bad, right? I was going to say Barstow, right? But, but everybody knows Barstow. And Barstow's on the 15. It's on the trade route. But Nazareth, Nazareth wasn't even on a trade route. It was like, you know, 15 miles off the beaten path. Nothing went through there. Uh, nobody knew about it. When you're, going, when you're going up to Mount Whitney or you're going up to the Eastern Sierras, once you get off the 15, you get on the 395 and you go about 20 miles, all of a sudden you just come across this collection of like Walmarts in the middle of the desert. And there's nothing there. And every time I drive through it, I'm like, how do these people even live here? What do they do? There's nothing here. This town called Adelanto in the middle of the desert, that's Nazareth. I mean, nobody's, nobody's moving to Adelanto on a winning streak. Nobody's like winning the lottery and looking at, you know, luxury homes in the gated community of Adelanto, right? Unless the only gated community in Adelanto is the state prison, right? <laughs> and that's one of the only industries in town. It's a town in the middle of nowhere where people that are not rich and famous and fancy live uh, it's a place that no one really wants to go, and that was Nazareth. That was Mary and Joseph's hometown. And not only did they come from nowhere, they didn't have nothing. Uh, you know, we know, how do we know this? How do we know that they were poor? Two weeks from now, we're going to talk about Jesus being presented at the temple in Luke chapter 2. Uh, and in Leviticus chapter 12, there's an ordinance given that when, when you give birth to a baby after 33 days, the, the mother and, the, and the, uh, the family has to come to the temple and make an offering for, the pure, for her purification, right? And in, the, in, in, in Leviticus, it says you are supposed to offer up a, a, a year of perfect lamb as the offering, right? But then there's a, there's a subclause that says, but if you can't afford a lamb, you can give two turtle doves. And what do we see Mary and Joseph giving when they come to the temple for their purification? They give two turtle doves because they couldn't even afford, they didn't, have, they didn't even have a lamb. They couldn't even afford a lamb to give. They didn't have a lot of money. To be, you know, the Bible says that Joseph was a carpenter. There's kind of a semantic range on that. It could mean anywhere from like regular builder, not Con, not contractor, not general contractor, like we would think. That's another word. Uh, but just like a, somebody who just builds stuff all the way down to like day laborer, like the guys that are sitting out in front of Home Depot looking for work every day. That's like the category of what Joseph did and what Jesus was raised in, you know, in the middle of this backward, back, backwater, nowhere town 
Uh, he was a tradesman, but he wasn't even middle class. He was just a regular lower class guy, like people from the Appalachian Mountains, just struggling to get by, living through all the quiet desperation of life. Uh, what does that tell us, man? Whatever, you know, we read in the story, descendant of David, and we see all the king lists, and we think, man, there's got to be, man, there's got to be some, uh, you know, there's got to be some juice coming down through that line for this family, right? They got to have something, but no, apparently not. Whatever claims they had to being descendants of David, and obviously, apparently it was something known to them, it had no power, had no meaning in real life. Maybe it was a funny joke Joseph used to tell at the bar after a long day of work out in the fields. He's like, hey, you know, David was my great, 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 great grandfather. And everybody would have a good laugh. And then he'd go home after an exhausting day. And that's why Mary is so troubled by this message. You notice, she's not troubled by the messenger, as troubling as that might be. And, and we know from other parts of the Bible that when an angel, angel's showing up on your doorstep, is troubling. And yet she doesn't seem to be tripping about the angel. She's tripping about the saying. The saying troubled her, right? The cognitive dissonance between the greeting and the message and her life caused her to be troubled. Like, what are you talking about, Gabriel? Maybe Mary just got off a 12-hour graveyard shift from the Adelanto Denny's, and she comes home to find this angel at her doorstep who says, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And Mary's looking around like, who, me? My life is favored? I think you got the wrong girl. The palace. You get on the 395 and head south towards Jerusalem. It's about 70 miles south of here. That's, that's where you find, that's where the favored ones are. That's where the ones who the Lord is with, not, not us, not here. We're just trying to get by. It's not just the message, not just the saying that troubles Mary. It's the whole message, you see, because Mary, Mary's a good Jewish girl. <laughs> She's been 15 years at least going to Sunday Torah school. And she knows the prophets, just like every good Jewish girl would. And so when she hears what Gabriel has said to her, she, uh, she understands what he's saying, that she is being caught up in the story of Messiah. And as big as her understanding of that is, the reality of it is even bigger than she can grasp. And that brings us to the next point. Second point caught up. Mary is being caught up in the quiet revolution. I haven't come through with the Lord of the Rings illustration for a while, so I'm glad the uh, interns have been handling that for me while they've been preaching. And I was thinking about this, you know, this story of Mary, and, 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 and I was thinking, you know, what's a story where, where ordinary people are caught up in something way so much bigger than themselves? And why is, it, why is it that we love, why is it that Lord of the Rings is such a popular 
series, such a popular uh, you know, book series. It's not necessarily because of Gandalf uh, and the big players and the, you know, the big players that totally understand what's going on on the field. It's not really about Gandalf. It's not really about Galadriel. It's not really about Elrond. Uh, not really even about Aragorn. Those guys are like the guides. They're the helpers. They're almost like my sources tell me, sources, that guys like Gandalf are really like pictures of like archangels who have come to like live in and among people and guide Middle Earth to its destination of redemption, right? And so who are the real heroes of the story? The, the reason why we can relate to it so much, it's because of Frodo. And because of Sam and Mary and Pippin, these ordinary little guys who get caught up in this story that's so big uh, that they never really get a grasp on it until after the end. You know, when, when, when Frodo gets the ring in the Shire, he has a certain level of understanding of the magnitude of events that are unfolding. When he gets to Rivendale, uh, he has a bigger picture of it, and he recognizes at least you know, the, the, the magnitude of it. But he still doesn't totally get it. It's so big, as an ordinary guy, he really can't understand it. Really not until far after the end has it really hit him what just happened and what he, bought, what he got caught up into. And the same is really true with Mary. She's a good Jewish girl. She knows the prophet. But the magnitudes of the events she's being swept up into are bigger than she can grasp. Here's what she does know. Here's what she does know, why she's troubled. She knows that this angel is talking messianic fulfillment stuff. When, angel, when the angel Gabriel says that to her son will be given the throne of David, Mary's mind goes back to Sunday school class, 2 Samuel 7, the promise that God made to David that one of his descendants would ascend to his throne and reign forever. And when he says that his kingdom will have no end, her mind goes to Isaiah 9, a prophecy about something that happens in Galilee where she is that says the Messiah will come and his kingdom, his government will have no end. And when Gabriel says, you will conceive in your womb, I think Mary gets it right there because she goes, wait a minute. Isaiah 7 says that the Messiah is going to be conceived by a virgin. And she goes, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm a virgin. <laughs> and so she asks him, how can this be? I'm a virgin. And here's what she didn't know. What he tells her is that the Messiah wasn't going to be just another human king. But the mind-blowing, like, bigger-than-life part of it was that the Messiah was actually going to be the incarnate God. You know, a lot of uh, arguments against the faith, or arguments against Christianity, against the virgin birth, kind of center on this whole idea that in pagan mythology all the way back, in Greek mythology, there was all these stories about, you know, gods having, you know, relationships with human women and creating these, these demigods. And, and I think that stuff, I mean, because we all know those stories, 
we all watch those movies, <laughs> those things like it, 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 it contaminates and limits our understanding of what is really happening and what's being really said here. Right? I mean, the answer, the short answer to all those attacks against the faith are uh, that's, they're not even talking about the same thing, man. We're not talking about God, a God who's much like us having relationships with a human woman and a semi-God, you know, half man, you know, half man, half God. It's, it's a picture of the creator of the universe taking on to himself human form and living life and experiencing everything that we experience, all the suffering and the tragedy, and literally coming into this world with the foreknowledge that his own people would murder him, and all for the purpose of bringing salvation to them, because he knew that we could never get to salvation on our own. Uh, and so that's what he says, man. He, he says, you know, the this isn't going to be a natural birth. The Most High is going to overshadow you and a special creation, a new order of mankind is going to be created in your womb. And so... Jesus, Mary is contemplating and troubled by the reality uh, that she is going to be the mother of God. Now, we trip on that. Protestants trip on that a lot, you know, because it just sounds so blasphemous, right? But that's, that's from Reformed confessions. Mary is the mother of God, that God was in her womb and she's can you imagine how mind-blowing that would be? I mean, even if she gets it a little bit, right? It's, it's, it's one of those things that's so big, you can't see it. You know? It's like something that's so big, if you walk up too close to it, I mean, you can see kind of what's right in front of you, but it's so big, you just can't even grasp the immensity of it. And that's Mary in this situation. She doesn't get it till after the resurrection, pretty much like everybody else, right? The rest of the gospel is talking about how Mary has, you know, just, just troubled in her heart and has these things that she deeply contemplates and, you know, and, and, and prophets telling her that the sword is going to pierce your heart also. And she's, she's like struggling her way through the whole thing, all the way in and through it. She has the baby, her and Joseph go back to their normal life. They have other kids. They're right back in the misery and the, and, the, and the dreary ordinariness of everyday life, experiencing that quiet desperation. And at the very same time, the, the, the incarnate God has broken into our world and is living in their house. God. Mind-blowing. It was so big, it was easy to lose sight of, and so do we. That's the point, right? That's happening now. That's still happening. The incarnate God has come. He has lived a perfect, righteous life for us. We have been given credit for that life. He has ascended into heaven. He right now sits at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us, 
praying for us as the mediator of a new covenant, all these big theological terms that basically means that we are in union with Jesus, that he has put us in touch by the power of the spirit that's in us in a relationship with the divine that will not break. And that story keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, but nobody can see. And so we live our lives, we get in, we still suffer from that quiet desperation. We get all stressed out about all these little things that happen, about the new lockdown, about what am I, how much money am I going to lose from this? What's going to happen to my business? Uh, what's going to happen to the kids? What about our school? What is going on? And right in front of us is this massive reality that we belong to, and it's hard to see it. <laughs> was for them, is for us. And that, that's kind of the point I'm trying to make, man. It is okay and it's normal to not get it all the time because it's too big. And yet, that doesn't mean that it's still not true. It doesn't mean that it is the true and great reality. It's just that that redemption that revolution that God is working is being carried out quietly in the background. And so that's the last thing to look at. What is exactly quiet about this revolution? What does it mean for us? Part three. What the incarnation means, it means a reversal of fortunes a reversal of fortunes. Uh, Brian, our, uh, Brian preached his inaugural sermon here pretty much all about Shawshank Redemption, which was a great sermon. Uh, great movie, and always, worth, always worth going back and looking at. If you know the story, the story of the Shawshank Redemption is that there's a guy, a guy named Andy, he used to be an accountant, he was charged uh, unfairly for the death of his wife and, and her boyfriend, and uh, sentenced to life in prison. When he comes in prison, he befriends a man named Red, who's a former smuggler. And as things play out, Andy, because of his accounting skills, kind of gets in with the guards, showing them how to shelter their money, doing their taxes for them, eventually winds up working for the warden of the prison in this money laundering scheme where he's sending money laundering money and sending it off to safe bank accounts for the scams that the warden has going on, right? And the culmination of the story comes when one morning, all of a sudden, out of the blue, Andy's just missing from his cell. And the warden, in, 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 in an act of disgust about what might have happened, picks up a rock and throws it at the wall, and it hits a poster of Raquel Welsh and puts a hole through the poster, and he goes up and he looks and there's a giant hole in the wall, and we start seeing these flashbacks of Andy over the last 19 years, slowly, in the background, quietly, in secret, putting together all the pieces of his redemption with a rock hammer, digging this tunnel through concrete for 19 years, filling two pockets at a time with dust and spreading it out over the yard as he walks around during exercise time getting a hold of a suit, channeling all this money to these different banks, stealing the warden's shiny shoes right in front of him as he walks out for the last time. 
And in that picture, what we see is Andy has put together his redemption slowly over time behind the scenes without anybody knowing about it. And that is what is happening with us. That's what Jesus is doing for us right now. All of the pieces are being put in place for this massive revolution that's going to occur at the second coming of Jesus, but it's already underway. The story is already going. We're already caught up in it. It is our reality and our life. Listen to what Mary sings about. She says, She says only a little tiny blurb about herself. People read the Magnificent, the Magnificent, which is the name for this song she sings, and they're like, see, it's all about Mary, mother of God, blessed for all generations. She's praising God for hooking her up, uh, for, and she's really extolling, like, it's extolling Mary, right? But it's not. There's one verse that talks about Mary. One verse where she says, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And that's true. Mary was the mother of God. We should call her blessed. God chose her for that special role. Nobody else here is going to be the mother of God, right? I want, I want Mary to be a role model to my girls. Her, her, her faith, uh, her willingness to suffer for the cause of Jesus. I want them to see that and, and emulate it in their lives. However, this song's not about Mary. What are the other nine verses about? It's about the power, the holiness, and the mercy. Five times it says mercy of God towards all his people who fear him, which means revere him, trust in him, call him blessed, uh, put him above all other things. Uh, nine other verses. What has he done for us? Talks about this crazy reversal of fortunes. He has shown his strength for us, the people who are slugging it out in the dreary ordinariness of everyday life, the quiet desperation of life, trusting and waiting for Jesus, losing sight of him, getting it, losing it, getting it, missing it. <laughs> he has shown his strength for us while he has scattered the crowd. Everybody trusting in their own righteousness. Everybody who thinks that they are so good and holy and great. Scattered. He has exalted the humble, the ordinary, the foolish. And he has brought down the mighty. He says thrones. He's talking about literally the people who are ruling the earth. Those who are in the exalted positions who believe that life and success and satisfaction uh, and ultimate blessing and benefit come from marching through and pushing through the mad dash for more and coming out on the top of the pile. And Mary says, everything's going to get turned upside down. And he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. Here's the thing about that. You notice they're all past tense, right? It's not saying God will show his strength for us. God will scatter the proud. It's all past tense verbs. And it's, it's a way that prophets in the Old Testament used to talk about things that hadn't really happened yet, but were so absolutely sure of happening because of God's sovereignty and because of God's power and because of God's providence 
that they could speak about it as if it had already happened. Jesus does this too. You have been saved. You have moved away out of death and into life. Even though that hasn't completely happened for us, even though these things haven't completely happened for us, we're still in the ordinary. This reversal of fortunes hasn't happened yet. Mary talks about it as if it's already happened because, because the power of God guarantees that it's already as good as done. It's called the prophetic aorist. You want to write that down for extra credit? Prophetic aorist, which means Mary is speaking prophetically here, right? In the background, all of these pieces are being put together in secret, in quiet, as God carries out and continues his plan, bringing his people in to the world. Looks like nothing. Looks like a bunch of crazy people for the most part. Uh, a bunch of backwards people. Can't believe you guys still believe in that stuff. To the world, it looks crazy. But behind the scenes, it is the power of God getting ready to spring this reversal of fortunes and this revolution on the world that we are already in. And how has he done it? Last thing. 54, 55, it says, He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. If he'd have said, if he'd have said, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Moses and his offspring forever, we might be in trouble. But whenever anybody talks about salvation, the covenant that God made with his people for salvation, they never go to Moses. They always go back one to Abraham. And what does God promise Abraham? A lot of stuff. The big promise is that through his offspring, all the nations of the world would be blessed. And we know from Paul, who is the offspring? Jesus. How are we blessed? Because the, the God of creation took on human form, took on all human suffering, took on the quiet desperation of life, and lived along and with us, fulfilling all the righteous requirements of his own law, giving us credit for that, and then dying in place of his people to forgive us of our sins. to forgive us of our sins. And that's the solution. That's the solution to the quiet desperation of life. Everybody's got their little plan. Thoreau had his plan. I'm sure Mary had her plan. We all got our plans. But ultimately, the solution to the, to the dreary ordinariness of life is to, not, is to remember that we are part of this bigger story. That this is just, again, the pregame show. We are part of this grand narrative of salvation, redemption that God is working out, that God has called us into. And it's something that's so sure, something that's so absolutely positive is going to happen 
that God speaks about it as if it already had. Because of what Jesus has done for us, we are safe. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the comfort you have given us, Lord. You don't you didn't come to the palace. You didn't come to the wise and the noble and the mighty. But you came to people like us to let us know that our our experience of the world is normative. This is normal. And you've come to save us from it. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us to not place our trust in, in things that can't provide. Help us to not place our trust in promises that don't come through, the promises of the world, promises of our own wicked hearts. And help us to, to cultivate and to remember the story that we're in and who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, so that we can go through this life not in quiet desperation, but in, in quiet rejoicing, knowing that the victory is already ours. Lord. So that's what Advent means for us, that the victory's been won. And we're not waiting on a gamble. We're not waiting on a chance. We're not waiting on luck. We have no fear that the guards are going to catch us because all the pieces are being put into place by you behind the scenes, being ready, making ready to be revealed. And so all we got to do is wait, Lord. All we got to do is wait and try to love each other as best we can. Remember who we are. Remember who you are. And in that, we promise that we will have peace, Lord. So help us to do that and help us to, in that, be light to the world. In Jesus' name, amen.